Greetings, Christchurch family. Today's reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, right through to chapter 4, verse 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer, for the wrongdoer will be paid back in the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know you ought 
so, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. One of the first few words in our passage this morning is therefore. Uh, that word connects this passage with the previous passage. So please don't disconnect them. Uh, we need to see them as a, as a whole. And essentially, uh, I'm tag-teaming with David from last week. So please have in mind what he said uh, when you consider what I'm about to say. The two passages go together. Let me pray, and then we will move into this morning's passage. Father, as always, we come to you needy, we come to you helpless, we come to you um, desperately asking that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, draw us to yourself by your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. I think if we took a national survey and we asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? the vast majority of people would answer it means to be good. I'm sure you arrived at that conclusion. It means to be good. It means uh, you live a moral life. That's what most people think. And there's actually some truth in that. There is some truth in that, which is why it's such a dangerous lie. You remember the Colossian church is under pressure to supplement their faith in Jesus with conventional wisdom from the culture. They are tempted to spice up their faith with cultural flavors, norms from society, norms from other faith communities. In exactly the same way we are, we face the same temptation. What is Paul's remedy? Paul's remedy is to give them a vision of Jesus in all his glory, so expansive, so brilliant, that there just isn't room for anything else. Jesus is enough. That's Paul's remedy. And in this part of the letter, he's showing them how the glorious lordship of Christ applies to every aspect of everyday life. It's an intensely practical part of his letter. He's giving the Colossians a picture of Christian living, and it is not the moral conformity or do-gooding that our culture thinks it is. So if the Christian life is not being good, well then, what is it? I think this passage gives us such a useful summary. It says that the Christian life is inside out, upside down, all around, with Jesus in the middle. The Christian life is inside out, upside down, all around, with Jesus in the middle. Let's unpack that. The Christian life is inside out. The Christian ethic is an identity ethic. It's about who you are before it's about what you do. Another way of saying it is like this. The Christian life is about becoming what you already are. Now this is the heartbeat of the whole passage, but verse 12 captures it beautifully. Read there, chapter 3, verse 12 with me. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Our culture looks at this verse and goes, it's exactly what I was talking about. There it is. 
incontrovertible evidence. Christians are supposed to be compassionate, kind, meek, humble, patient pushovers. It's, it's what I was just saying. They're a bunch of bleeding heart do-gooders and hypocrites. That's how our culture might respond. What about you? You might respond in that way. If you do, what have you missed? What have you missed in verse 12? The little phrase that makes all the difference. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is our identity. And it comes before our practice. We are God's beloved children, set apart by him and for him. Before we do anything, that's what we are. God has done the choosing and the loving. And we are called to live out of that reality. We are called to become who we already are. And you notice that humility is part of the package in verse 12. Why? Well, because there was nothing to commend us to God when he chose us. We are no better than anybody else. He chose us because he loved us. And he loved us because he loved us. That has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. Our lives are to be a witness of how, God, how good God is, not how good we are. I'm just going to say that again. Our lives are to be a witness of how good God is, not how good we are. It's only once Paul has established our identity that he then tells us to live it, how we should live it out. And he uses a clothing analogy. Put on the clothes that are appropriate to who you are. You are a fireman, so don't wear a tutu. Don't put on a leotard. Don't dress like a six-year-old ballerina. Not only are you going to embarrass your colleagues, but leotards are highly flammable. So leave your daughter's tutu at home. Be who you are. Paul is saying to the Colossians, put on behavior, behaviors that are suited to who you are in Christ. Behaviors that fit. Do you notice how different that is to what the world thinks of Christianity? And to the way every other moral code works. The way the world works, the world's morality. This is the logic of the world's morality. It's that you live a certain way and then you'll become something. Conform to these cultural norms. And then you'll be considered worthy. You'll, you'll be counted as a decent human being. By what standard? By the standard of the culture. Or in religion. Abide by these rituals. Conform to these virtues. Set aside these vices. And you will prove yourself worthy of God, whoever God may be. In other words, dress like a fireman and soon you'll become one. Is that true? Does that ring true to you? I can go to work every day dressed like a fireman, that little axe swinging from my belt. I can preach to you in the red helmet. But the moment there's a fire, you want a real fireman, even if he's dressed in a tutu. That's who you want. Christianity recognizes that dressing like a fireman doesn't make me one. Human morality is outside in. But Christianity 
following Jesus is inside out. God has made me his child in an act of loving grace that I could never, ever deserve. And so now I live like one. This is the point that David made so forcefully last week. If I dress up like a fireman for all the world to see, it's what verse 22 calls eye service or people pleasing. It means I'm living from the outside in and the world is going to smell a rat. This is the age of authenticity. The world will know that that's not authentic. It's why they call us hypocrites. But if I'm living out of who God is, out of what he's done, out of who he has made me, and my behavior is slowly starting to reflect that, and I am slowly, imperfectly, in the words of verse 10, being renewed in the image of my creator with real humility, that will be authentic. And those who are honest will see it as such because you just can't fake that sort of thing. The world lives outside in. The Christian lives inside out. The question is, which are you? Which way are you living? Outside in or inside out? Because you need to know this. You can be completely socialized in church culture. You can know all the right words, attend all the right events. You can be in some sort of leadership position. But you can still, even given all of that, you can still be living outside in. How will you know? Well, one sure sign is that you will be very, very conscious, very sensitive to what other people think. Because after all, it's all done ultimately with other people in mind. It's your reputation that's at stake. You will get very, very upset if you think that you've been misunderstood and it might reflect poorly on you. Did it look like I didn't quite get the gospel in that situation? Did they get the impression that I don't read my Bible every day? Are they walking away thinking there might be a problem in my marriage? I need to sort all of this out. And of course, the more senior the people are in the church organogram, the more you will care what they think. Because it's all outside in. And if you're living outside in, you will also struggle to admit to any real kind of sin in your life. I'm not talking about I get angry with taxi drivers. That's universally acceptable. But lust, greed, hatred, selfishness, unforgiveness, those are taboo because you are living outside in. And because you're living outside in, they're not just behaviors, they actually reflect on who you are. Those behaviors mean that you are not a good Christian by the logic of outside-in living. You see the danger here? But on the other hand, if you are living inside out, you won't be obsessing what others think because you will be so consumed with the Lord Jesus and what he thinks. And you will freely admit your struggles because they don't define who you are. Jesus does. And he was perfect. To the extent that you are living inside out, there will be joy, there will be peace, there will be security, there will be the freedom to laugh at yourself. 
if you are finding that your church life, your interactions with others at church are, are a stress, if you're finding it's an effort, it's all about managing your brand ultimately, well, those are clues. Those are clues to you. Those are red flags that you are living outside in. In Christ, we are free to live inside out. That's the first mark of the Christian life. And the first point is by far the longest. You can see I've learned from the Master. And because I've learned so well from the Master, I can say that knowing that it's not really true. Martin, we love you. Just kidding. We love you. We love your three points that are actually eight if you count the side roads. We love the fact that every point is actually just as long or longer than the previous point. We love the whole package. Christian living, let's get back to that. Christian living is inside out and it's upside down. Christian living is upside down in that it is not at home in this world. It should look strange to the world. In our passage, Paul addresses three areas of practice and and he's got a kind of a formula, so you need to see this. In each case, he describes the cultural norm and then he says, you mustn't be like that. Why? Because that's not who you are. So it's the same pattern all the way through. He describes the cultural norm. He says, don't be like that. Why? Because that's not who you are. So in verses 5 to 7, there's a sex ethic. In verses 8 and 9, there's a speech ethic. In verse 11 and then verses 18 to 25, there's a group and power ethic. We start with the sex ethic. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, it doesn't seem like it in the English, but all of those terms actually apply to sexual morality. Paul describes the wider Colossian sex ethic as a kind of a false worship. It's an idolatry. The Colossian Christians used to participate in all of that. But it's not who they are anymore. Our situation is very similar, isn't it? In fact, there is no sexual morality in our culture. There are no sexual norms left, except one. There's only one that I can think of. It is forbidden to forbid we worship sex in all its forms. Malcolm Muggeridge said it's, it's, it's a very striking quote. It's an uncomfortable quote, but I think he captures it. He said this, The orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of longing and the image of fulfillment. We worship sex. And this God demands total devotion. The only thing you are not allowed to do when it comes to sex is to say that something is not allowed. That's Freudian suppression, and it's not healthy. People should be free. I once heard uh, radio sexpert Dr. Eve describe how she would treat a pedophile. No conversion therapy under any circumstances. No, what she would do is help this pedophile to understand that this is his normal and help him to live as such. Anything goes, my friends. Anything. Not so with the Christian. We don't participate. 
not because we have a low view of sex, it's something dirty and beneath us. No, we, ha- we don't participate because we have such a high view of sex. Sex is a precious gift from God. And true freedom is to receive it in the spirit in which it is given. And to use it as the giver intended. You wouldn't trade any gift for your relationship with the giver, would you? Gents, I'm not talking about the socks you get from your mother-in-law. Let's take another category of relationship. You would never ever trade the gift that you get from a loved one for the relationship. And yet that's exactly what we do with sex, which is a gift from God. Jesus never had sex. And yet he was undoubtedly the most integrated, well-adjusted, healthy human being who ever lived. We don't worship sex. We worship him. Our identity is in him. It's not in sex. As wonderful a gift as that is. Now, if that's the truth, and if we live it out, it's going to seem very, very strange to the world around us. To use Paul's clothing analogy, we will be breaking every rule of the prevailing fashion. And yet somehow, though no one will want to admit it, somehow we will be very attractive to those around us. Second area Paul deals with. The first area is sex. The second area he deals with is speech. Chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So to paraphrase, we must put off all kinds of destructive speech and we mustn't lie. Why? Because we have a new self, a new identity, verse 10. We are a new humanity and we live out of that identity that new identity. Again, it's not that the culture has a different morality of speech, it's that the culture doesn't really have a morality of speech at all. You can pretty much say whatever you like as long as it gets the job done and as long as it doesn't cause offense. This again is perhaps the one exception, the golden rule, the one moral code, one item on the moral code left behind. Thou shalt not offend anyone. At the same time, we glory in obscene talk. It doesn't offend us in the least. Try finding a movie you can watch with your children. I challenge you. Perhaps the biggest cultural gap in this area is when when it comes to the issue of truth itself. That's probably the biggest gap. In our culture, you make your own truth. Truth is inside of you. Truth is not out there to be discovered. It's in here to be defined and then to be imposed on the world. One story to illustrate. Uh, In 1992, a lady by the name of Rigoberto Menchu won the Nobel Prize. Uh, Ten years before she had written what she described as a testimony, it was a kind of an autobiography of some of the horrors of the Civil War in Guatemala. And And in that, she recorded her own eyewitness account of the brutal torture and death of her brother in vivid detail. Once the book was released, uh, she became an international hero overnight because she had broken the silence, because she had spoken the truth. 
But after she won the Peace Prize, an anthropology professor revealed that she had falsified many, many, many of the key details in her account, including the account of her brother's death. She wasn't even there to witness it. The thing I really want to put to you is her response, because her response, I believe, captures our culture's view of truth. This is what happened. She attacked the professor's character, his motives, and then she told a prominent newspaper my truth is that my brother was burned alive. My truth. The great irony is that the person she beat out for the Peace Prize in 1992 was a real champion of truth. Nelson Mandela. But that's our culture's view of truth. There is no truth with a capital T. There's only my truth and your truth. And so there is no lying really. There's only differences in interpretation. And even if you can see that there might be lying on occasion, well, it's, it's really what you need to do to get the job done. I mean, who doesn't lie? I think the reality show Survivor is more reality than show at this particular point. The basic ethos of that show is say whatever you like, because what is truth anyway? And there's a million dollars on the line. That's our culture. Now imagine something else. Imagine a community fiercely committed to the truth because they are fiercely committed to the one who said, I am the truth. Imagine a community where true words are spoken to build up and to lift up rather than to cut down or get ahead. I mean, that community, those people would be dressed strangely, wouldn't they? They would be breaking all the rules of fashion. Sex, speech, and finally, there's group power and ethic. Verse 11. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In our hearts, in our minds, we have our own Greeks or barbarians, don't we? We live in the age of identity politics, where your group defines who you are. And because we've thrown out the truth, the only way that groups can relate to one another is power. That's our culture. I mean, just this past week, we've had a shampoo companies and politicians essentially telling us to get back in your group and stay there. Sounds like the Colossians had something similar going on. Not so with those who are in Christ. Our primary identity is in Him, and that frees us. It liberates us. It opens the way to loving across groups because group identity is now secondary. And our differences don't divide us, they enrich us. We are not different from each other in Christ. We are different for each other. In Christ, you don't have to limit your, your love and your trust, your kindness to those in your group, whatever your group may be. And when you encounter someone from another group, your first instinct is no longer suspicion. 
Your first instinct can be goodwill, even affection. Why? It's a great question. Why? Because God loved you when you were part of another group, a hostile group. Whatever their group, if they are in Christ, then he is a brother and she is a sister. If they are not in Christ, well, then they're still made in the image of God and group identity is still secondary. Notice that to achieve this integration, Paul doesn't pretend that people are absolutely identical and that there are no distinctions. He doesn't abolish groups. Just like in dealing with abuse and oppression, he doesn't demand the overthrow of all hierarchies and the end of all authority. He just doesn't do that because the gospel doesn't do that. Let's read, uh, just read with me from chapter 3, verse 18 to 25. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The first thing to notice is that this is addressed to various groups in a hierarchy. It's a domestic hierarchy. That's what it is. Do you see how it's organized? Fathers, mothers, children, servants. Paul is affirming our primary identity in Christ without abolishing either hierarchy or group distinction. He can say that in Christ there is neither male nor female and then almost in the very next breath say, husbands, I want to talk to you as a group. Wives, I want to talk to you as a group. So being in Christ puts group and power in their proper place without abolishing them. But you st might still have objections, and I don't blame you. You might, you might still be thinking, listen, that sounds fine, but isn't Christianity really just another attempt by some groups to maintain, maintain power over other groups? Isn't that what's really going on here? And actually, actually, in real inside-out Christianity... The reverse is true. To understand this, I want to show you, so, so, so go with me on this. To understand this, we need to know something about the ancient world. The ancient world had moral codes just like the one that we've just read. Moral codes for households, domestic moral codes. And the, and the reason they had them is because that they believed that the family was the building block of society. If you wanted order in society, you needed to have order in the home. Now, we might go with them that far. In fact, I think most of us would be inclined to go with them that far. But there's one key difference. Their codes were organized around the pater familias, around promoting, defending, protecting, maintaining the power of the father, elevating the power of the father. So, so their codes would have read something like this. Notice the difference. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your fathers. 
bondservants, in everything obey your earthly masters. Paul takes that ancient domestic morality and he breathes life into it in two ways. First, it's all done in the Lord. In other words, it's an identity ethic. It's inside out. And because of that, second, Paul doesn't just list everybody's obligation to the leader like the culture of his day would. He lists the leader's obligation to everybody else. So it's husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Do not discourage them. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul places a limiting condition on the power of the paterfamilias. And that condition is love. Power in the Christian home, and in fact, in the Christian ethic, power can only ever be exercised in love. There is no other condition under which power can be exercised in the Christian life. Power can only be exercised in love, in the interests of others, in service. So this is not just tweaking at the edges of something that we find, some injustice that we find impalatable to make it more palatable. You know, it's not, it's not putting lipstick on the pig. This is taking the power current and reversing it. If I'm the part of familiars, power no longer flows in towards my interests. It flows out from me towards the interests of others. I mean, that would have been absolutely unheard of. It would have been a scandal in the ancient world. And the difference was Christ. Christ has all authority. Just think about this. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It is his. How does he exercise it? In loving service of the most extraordinary and far-reaching kind. We cannot fathom the depths of Christ's love for us. So too, those who are in him. If the world looks at us, they should see people wearing strange clothes that somehow fit perfectly and are somehow very, very attractive. They should see a new humanity who solved the problem of group dynamics, not by pretending that groups don't exist, but by insisting that group identity is secondary and that our differences enrich us. We are not different from each other in Christ. In Christ, we are different for each other. And this new humanity solves the problem of power, not by the abolition of power, not by some sort of anti-authoritarian anarchy, but by those in power exercising that power in love and only ever in love. The Christian life breaks all the rules of fashion. Does yours. When people look at you, do they see someone in strange, very strange, but attractive clothing? Or do they look at you and think, oh, just let him in, he's one of us. Let's compare you with your non-Christian neighbor. Is there any real difference? If we did a lifestyle audit, is there any real difference in any of these areas? Sex, speech, 
group in power. If not, if you are feeling convicted this morning, just remember the solution doesn't start with your behavior. It starts with your identity. It's who you are before it's what you do. Inside out, upside down, all around. Paul makes the point that if we are living out of Christ, we will live out of Christ in every direction. The Lordship of Christ will touch every aspect of our lives, every relationship. So think of your home address. You're sitting there right now. It's not a difficult thought experiment. Let's just call it, for the sake of argument, number one new road. You're sitting at number one new road. Let me put it to you. That if Jesus isn't king there, then it's very doubtful whether he is king anywhere in your life. Because if he's king, then he's king first of all in your own heart. And then he's king in your home. Before he's king at church. Remember, it's inside out. And Christian living is in every direction. So, If Jesus is king, it matters. It matters deeply how you treat your husband or your wife. It matters how you treat your children. Your domestic relationships are the ones where you are most naturally yourself. We we let it all hang out at home. So your domestic relationships are the real measure of whether Jesus is king in your life. It's not so much how you behave at life group or on the church council. It's how you treat your parents, how you treat your children, how you treat your servants. I need to say something about slavery, that word bondservant, because this is so very painful for us when we encounter this in the New Testament. Can I just say to you, emphatically, Paul is not promoting or defending slavery in what he writes here. In fact, Paul is undermining slavery in what he writes, in at least two ways. First of all, addressing slaves at all means that they were integrated into the church. And clearly by what he's writing, Paul is seeking to deepen that integration. Secondly, he emphasizes the fact that both slave and master have the same master. And so mutual, mutual love and respect is required. And again, this would have been an absolute outrage in the culture. It would have been subversive. Paul is not trying to promote slavery. In fact, what he writes is the beginning of the institution of the end of the institution of slavery. Now, the closest analogy we have, it's a very partial analogy at best, but the closest analogy we have to slavery is perhaps work relationships. And within work relationships, I think the closest thing we have is domestic employment. Dare I say it, some of us are treating our domestic workers like slaves. So here's a question for middle class Midrand. How do you treat your domestic worker? Do you use the fact that she's an illegal immigrant to drive her wage as low as possible? Is that what you do? What are her hours? How do you speak to her? 
does it make sense to her that you are watching this broadcast? Does that make sense to her? That you that you go to church on a Sunday or that you watch church, you have church at home on a Sunday? I mean, does it make sense? Can she, can she compute it? Can she reconcile it with what she sees Monday to Saturday? Does it make sense to her or does it infuriate her? When she speaks to her friends, does she say, I'm so glad that my boss is a Christian. I'm so glad that my boss follows Jesus. It makes all the difference. Now let's put the shoe on the other foot. Let me address us as workers, because after all, we are middle class midrand, which means for many of us, we are both employers and employees just at different times of the day. So let me speak to us as workers. What is your performance like when your boss is not there? And right now, he's hardly ever there, is he? We all remote. So he's hardly ever watching. What's your performance like when he's not watching? Paul's point is that your big boss is always watching. So work to please him. Christian living is in every direction. At, at home, at work, at church, and towards those on the outside. Chapter 4 verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Christian living is in every direction because it is supremely a life lived towards God. Chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that brings us to our last mark of Christian living. It is inside out. It is upside down. It's all around. But more than anything else, it has Jesus right in the middle. When Paul wants to encourage the Colossians to Christian living, he puts Jesus right in the middle. The title Christ appears nine times in just these few verses that we read this morning. Nine times. Our lives are to be built around the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the mystery of Christ, the service of Christ, the name of Christ. But here's the truth we have to face. Even as Christians, we so often go back to outside-in living, to eye service, to people-pleasing. Or the alternative, we dress ourselves in the fashions of our culture. We want to strut and preen and pout on the catwalks of this world like everybody else. There are also times when our Christianity is at best partial. It only touches the easy, comfortable, arm's length public relationships. And all of that, all of that is why Jesus has to be in the middle. He has to be in the middle. He's the only one who ever lived the inside out, upside down, all around life with perfect integrity. He is the reason we can even begin to try to do the same. Let's go back to verse 12. We started with verse 12. Let's go back there. We are dearly loved by God. How do we know? It says we're dearly loved by God, but how do we know? Jesus is God's love in flesh and blood. 
the holes in his hands, the scars on his back are an eternal witness to God's love for you. Verse 12 says we are God's children. But again, how do we know? Because Jesus is the perfect son of the Father. And by the Spirit we are drawn in, invited in, into this eternal love relationship between the Father and the Son. We stand before the Father as sons and daughters because we stand in Christ, because we are with Christ. We are with the Son. That is that He is the only basis on which we can call ourselves sons and daughters. He stood with us so that we can stand with Him in an eternal love relationship with the Father. Do you see why Jesus has to be in the middle? He has to be in the middle. When Paul looks at the Colossians and he sees all the potential for social and moral chaos, he doesn't just give them a list of behavior changes. He gives them a new identity. And it comes with a new set of clothes. He gives them Jesus. And Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, as your dearly beloved children whom you chose, as those for whom Jesus died, we want, we desperately want to live a life that pleases you. Please, Father, empower us by your spirit, motivate us by your love and your grace to put off those behaviors that are not of you, that bring you disgrace, that shame you, and to put on those that are so that we might truly become who we are in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been such a privilege to be with you all this Sunday morning. I pray that uh, this week is a blessed one for you as you seek to live this out, as you seek to live out your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take care, everybody.